Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you are with us last Sunday, what we learned together was that um, even though nobody welcomes affliction and suffering, a lot of the time God will use our suffering to do good things in us spiritually. Now, if you're like me, I'm one of those people where I'm waiting for this suffering to visit my life because so far in this earthly life, I've struggled, but I don't know that I can say I've experienced that deep kind of heart suffering that threatens to break a person. But I believe that when it comes upon us, and it will, God so often uses it to produce something spiritually great in our lives. And so that was last week's message This Sunday, this morning, we continue this feel-good series by talking about how God will use our weaknesses to do good things in us spiritually. I don't think any society ever has valued weakness. When you see statues made and and displayed in parks, you rarely see a scrawny guy who can barely hold up his sword. We don't value weakness. What we value is strength. Vitality, victory, accomplishment. Everybody likes the winner. Nobody likes the guy who lost the race. That's the way that our societies are built, and we instinctively run to those who appear like they're going to win. But the truth is that weakness is one of the foundational human experiences. In fact, look at, look at what it says in Romans chapter 8. Verses 20 to 21. Against its will, everything on earth was subjected to God's curse. All creation anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. What it says, and it's clearer in other translations, is that when sin entered the universe through the fall of man, that along with sin came close on its heels, death and decay, so that the entire creation was now put in bondage to decay. Another way of saying that more simply is that everything is rotting, everything is decaying. In fact, everything that is alive today is slowly dying. Is that uplifting so far? (laughs) My goal is simply to tell the truth this morning. It It is not to puff us up with things that are not true, but things that are true, because then we may wake up and begin to respond to reality rather than fantasy. And that's the truth. You know, when you were born, the human heart is not an electric clock. It's a wind-up clock. It had so many turns of the dial, and when it's done turning, it will turn off. That is the nature of life in a fallen universe, is that from its beginning, everything living is slowly dying. That's why you can fight hard when you still have your youth and your strength, you can fight hard to create the illusion that you are on the uphill swing. You are winning. You are strong. You are invulnerable. But eventually, the frailty and the brokenness and the weakness of the human condition will catch you. And that's why it is so critically important that in a universe that is in bondage to decay, we all find some way to deal with weakness redemptively. Are you with me so far? Everything will grow weaker over time. Everything. 
societies, companies, bank accounts, economies, the human body. Just take a look at yourself. And if you are over 40 years old, what greets you in the morning after your shower looks different than what you were looking at when you were 18. That's just the way it is. I remember when I was younger that I could lift weights that I just, I looked at it, there's no way I'm going to get that up and I could do it. Now I look at weights that I, I used to warm up with and my arms are like this and I can't. And it's so humiliating being at the club. Officer Don Boardman, Howie Park took me shooting and I couldn't even load a bullet in the clip. You know, you see in the movies, just like, just like this. And there's Senna, a female, that's me. She just loaded them like this. I'm like, I'm cutting my fingers open trying to get a bullet into the magazine. That is how degraded my physical strength has become. That was a very humbling moment for me <laughs> when I couldn't even do that part. I tried pulling the slide back and I couldn't even do it. I have become so weak. And I think maybe that's an important thing to acknowledge is that if you don't find a way to embrace and deal with growing weakness, this life will kick your butt. And the older you get, the more despondent you'll get and you'll fall into despair. So that's just the setup. I, <clears throat> it gets better from here. But I, I think you need to at least paint the picture of reality for people. And so there it is. Now, this passage that Heath read so beautifully, it, it comes from the second letter in the Bible that's recorded, which the Apostle Paul wrote to his friends at the church in the city of Corinth. It's a Greek city on the southern coast, and uh, it is a sophisticated city. It, it was like I said, L.A., New York, and Washington, D.C., all wrapped up into one. That's what the ancient city of Corinth was like. Now, let me give you a little bit of historical context. Paul made his first visit to the city of Corinth early in his ministry, and he spent about a year and a half there planting a church in that city. That was not an easy thing for him to do because it was an uphill battle all the way. And from the start, Paul had a very turbulent relationship with the people in this church because they were so committed to spiritual immaturity. In fact, in the first letter he wrote to them, in chapter 5, he says, I'm almost at a loss for words because I'm hearing rumors of things you're doing that even the pagans don't do. What am I going to do with you people? Every time he leaves them physically, everything falls apart in that city spiritually. And so he had this difficult relationship with them. After he established the church in Corinth, he went away to, to the city of Ephesus, where he spent about three years establishing the church there. Now, while he was gone in Ephesus, some traveling Christian teachers who were false apostles came to the city of Corinth. And these guys were smooth talkers. They knew how to work a crowd. They were making really great boasts about things they've seen and experienced, revelations which God had given to them. And, of course, all of these things are unverifiable. If you read the history of the church in the Middle Ages, it's interesting to see how often the priests, whenever they were trying to manipulate a political situation, would say in order to get their way, the dead Saint Cuthbert or the dead Saint Patrick told me in a vision to do this. And when you appeal to things like that, which are completely unverifiable, who's going to tell the priest or the pope, saints didn't tell you that. There's no way you saw that. You would be threatened with excommunication. And so they would make these huge boasts, which no one could prove. But if you said it in a way that was theatrical enough, the audience would hear you and they would say, oh, for sure this guy saw something. 
I mean, that's crazy stuff. That's unbelievable. And so these false apostles came to Corinth, and with a little road show, they began swaying the hearts of the people towards them. And as is often the case, when their true leader, their spiritual leader, Paul, was out of sight, these teachers began saying all kinds of negative things about Paul. See, Paul, because of the spiritual condition in Corinth, had to write letters that were very stern because they were so disobedient to God, he was in the, in the unenviable position of being the scolder-in-chief for the sake of God. And so these false apostles would see these letters that Paul would write to the Corinthians. They'd say, look at this guy. When he's far away from us, when he's out of town, ooh, big man. He says stern words. He talks with a big stick in his hand. But when he's here, he's weak. He's not a very good speaker. When he's with us, he's timid, but when he's far away, he suddenly becomes a big man. And we've told you about all these incredible things we've seen. What has Paul ever boasted about? What did he ever see? And so this is what's going on back in Corinth. And Paul is hearing news of this while he's in Ephesus, and it's driving him crazy. And it's not making him upset because his own reputation is being besmirched. It's making him upset because as these false apostles gain influence with the people they were beginning to teach a different form of Christianity, one that had nothing to do with biblical Christianity. They were teaching a different Jesus and a different gospel than the true Jesus and the true gospel. And Paul would never, you know, be up in arms over his own reputation being dragged through the mud. But when he saw a false gospel and a false Jesus being proclaimed in Corinth, he could not just stand by and let that pass. And so Paul is backed into this this corner, this interesting uh, scenario where he has to boast in order, because everyone's saying all these false teachers, they have incredible stories. But Paul, we've never heard once about your great visions, your miraculous experiences. And so finally, Paul says, look, if you really want me to boast about all my accomplishments, if you want me to recite my resume, I could easily do that. And I could beat all these guys at their game, but that is not the way I'm going to approach it. And so what Paul does here is he says, because you need these validations and because you're wondering if I have the right to be an apostle, let me do a little bragging of my own. And here's what he says. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think of me more than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul says, I've been quiet all these years because I didn't want my authority to come from these fantastic stories which you cannot verify. I wanted my authority to come from what you see in my life and what you hear from me. That is the basis of my authority towards you. But if you really need to hear stories, let me tell you one. And he tells them a story about 14 years before that would have been just at the time after his conversion as his Christian experience is just beginning and his ministry is about to get underway. He says, about 14 years ago when all this was starting, God gave me an experience that to this day was so profound. I'm not sure if it was a vision or if I was actually teleported somewhere. But here's what I saw. I basically got a guided tour of heaven and I heard things which human beings are not permitted to hear or certainly not permitted to repeat. I saw things that your your super apostles, which he kind of mockingly calls them. I saw things which your super apostles couldn't even dream of. And for 14 years, having seen that incredible vision, I remained silent. I did not once testify about it or boast about it 
because I understood that that vision had not been given to me in order to build my reputation, but to build my spirit. For he had been one of the greatest prosecutors, persecutors of the church. And now that he was about to serve the Lord, he would pay a high cost for that. And God was giving him a glorious glimpse of what awaited him in his eternal future. And so Paul says, that was meant for me. I didn't use it to build a reputation and a career, but God gave it to me to build up my heart. And so, yeah, if I wanted to, I could boast about that. And I've right there outdone every boast which your super apostles have made. But that's not what I want to boast in. What I want to boast in is that in the midst of these exceedingly great revelations which God gave me to see, he also gave me some weaknesses which have become, in the end, the greatest testimony of my life. I could tell you all about the great stuff I did, but in the end, that would either produce bitterness or envy in most people who hear my testimony. They would say, well, good for you, Paul. We can't ever do that. Or good for you, Paul. Why don't you shut up now and stop bragging? That's how most of us feel, isn't it? When we hear amazing stories of what others have done. I climbed Mount Everest and after that I flew home in my own private plane and I went home to my mansion and my supermodel wife and you know, I drove home from the airport in my Lamborghini and I won the gold medal in the Olympics and I graduated summa cum laude from Harvard and they're bragging about all this. How many of you hear that and go, oh, I, you're just so great. I, I admire you so much. How can I become more like you? Rare is the person who responds to the boasting of others like that. Most people hear boasting. What's the response? Whatever. Good for you, buddy. I'm so glad you're born better than I was, right? And that's that's the kind of heart we have. And so Paul said, if I'm going to boast in anything, I want to boast in a way that opens the hearer's hearts, doesn't shut them up. So let me tell you the really interesting story of my life. It's not what I did, which you cannot reproduce. It's what God did in my life, which he can certainly do in your life. It is a testimony that exalts Jesus and increases your hope that you also can experience what I experience so that my testimony can also become your testimony. He says, since God had shown me so great a revelation, he also, he also gave me, <clears throat> what happened there? He also gave me what he called a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited. It's a strange thing that when you give someone a gift that they did not earn or pay for, sometimes it produces great pride. Years ago, I told you the story of the first time I ever spoke at a retreat. It was in upstate New York. And at the end of the retreat, there was this one kid, the whole retreat, it was a youth group retreat, big youth group, about 200 kids. And uh, there was one kid who was a real punk. He sat in the front row with his hat kind of put over the brim of his hat, you know, low over his eyes, and he's like this, and he's just basically... He's in my face the whole time just proving from the front row that he doesn't care a a lick about anything I'm saying. I wanted to throw stuff at that kid. That kid was bugging me. Like, if you're going to be a punk, go sit in the back and be a punk. Don't be right in front of me doing this. And it was my first retreat. So he was throwing me off my game big time. So already I don't like this kid. But at the end of the retreat, all this commotion is outside the worship hall. And I hear this really loud engine. I walk out and there's the same kid behind the wheel of a maroon Porsche 911 turbo convertible. Brand new, that model year. And I'm thinking, oh, good Lord. No wonder he's like, what, is it? what are his parents thinking? And it was his car, his birthday gift for turning 16. 
And he was basically holding court as the king of the youth group. He was behind the wheel with his arm behind the leather upholstery and all of the girls, of course, because when you're that young, it all it takes is a car. And evidently, you just, woo And there were all the girls just, whoa, he's so cool. And all the guys are over there secretly envious. And I thought, you know, you did zero to earn that car. It was something dropped in your lap because you passed through the right birth canal. Because you're that person's kid, you get that car, and yet the pride welling up in him is as if he had worked a thousand sleepless nights to buy that car for himself. And I thought, that's the way the human heart works. You get a gift which you can take no credit for producing, and yet somehow you begin to grow very proud of that gift. You go proud of something which you can't claim credit for. And Paul understood this, and God certainly knew this about him. So he said, because I've shown you something that could produce such pride in you, I will give along with that gift something to keep your heart in check. And he called it a thorn in the flesh. Uh, He also called it a messenger of Satan. That word thorn in the Greek can also be very properly translated stake, like the kind of stake you use to drive a tent and hold it into the ground. It's not a little thorn like, ooh you know, a little nettle or something like that. It's like this giant barb stuck through your palm coming out the other side. It's the kind of physical thing that experience that you just cannot ignore. It's right there in your face and it throbs constantly like a paper cut, you know, where it just, it hurts all the time. There isn't a moment where the pain subsides or can be forgotten. And he says, God gave me something like that, a thorn in my flesh, a difficulty in my, and I I believe some people theorize it could be a person or it could be opposition and, and a case could be made for that. But I believe he's talking about a physical ailment, chronic pain or disability, which cost him such grief and anguish in his heart. I've read a little bit about the psychology of chronic pain. And when there is a discomfort or a disability that you can't ever be free of, it begins to affect the way you think and feel about the world and about yourself. And God gave Paul this thing, and he called it both a thing from God and a messenger of Satan. So how could both be true? Well, we know this, that that every time we suffer, God's enemy, Satan, delights in that because his chief agenda is to cause grief where God wants to produce joy, to break the things which God is building. And wherever God is causing people to rejoice and be thankful, he's trying to thwart and break that work. And so we know this, that so often in the midst of pain and weakness and suffering, Satan is right there whispering to our ears, This stinks, doesn't it? It's so unfair that you should have to go through this. And look at that smug person sitting next to you with a perfectly healthy body. And they're not even thankful. Where's the justice in this world when you have to put up with so much difficulty and others don't even regard God or acknowledge him and they seem so carefree and whole and happy. And basically the enemy as as, as messenger is using that suffering to say to you, give up the fight. Stop hoping. Stop trying. Stop thanking God. And and as Job's wife said to him, just curse God and die already. What is there to live for when this much is taken from you, when life is so clearly unjust? What's the point of going on? This is the one thing you need to remember is that every time you struggle with a weakness or with a trial, 
the enemy is right behind you, constantly trying to work his agenda, that he's using that trial to get you to give up on yourself and to give up on God. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Because I've sat with many of you while you're wrestling with that very struggle. I want to fight, but I'm at this point where I really don't care anymore. I'm trying so hard to care, but I can't make myself care. It would be so easy to just close my eyes and give up the fight. In fact, Paul says three times, is there something going on with the, okay, there we go. So three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now remember, this is Paul who taught us in Ephesians 6.18, pray on all occasions. This is Paul who taught us in Philippians 4.6, in everything, present your request to God. So I don't think what he's saying is about three times I prayed about this horrible affliction. What he's saying is I prayed about it every chance I got, but there are at least three occasions I can remember where the trial got so heavy, the challenge was so great, I reached a breaking point where I felt honestly like I, I'm out. I, I, there's nothing left in me. I cannot take it anymore. And he shouted to God with everything in him, please take this away from me. I don't think I can last another day in this situation. This is hell on earth. And if you don't turn it off, I'm going to turn it off. That's the kind of breaking point which Paul reached. And three times, can you identify with that? Some of you, can you relate to what that feels like? Where this thing which on a good day you could deal with, there have been days where you just said, you know what, I'm done. It's over. I got nothing left in me that wants to fight anymore. I'm not going to see you tomorrow morning. Some of you have been there. Some of you might even be there right now. It's a hard place to be. And he did the most natural thing. When he reached his breaking point, he cried out to heaven, God, please take this thing away from me. Make it go away. Now, I'm a father. If my child said that, with clear anguish at the very stretching point where he's going to break, I think I would instinctively say, sure. And I pull the thorn right out of his flesh. But to my great surprise and even a little bit of horror, what I go on to read is he asks, and instead of saying, sure, son, God says, no, I'm not going to do that. Three times you hit the absolute breaking point, but think about that. He didn't hit it once. You got to the third time which means even though you thought you would break the first time and the second time, you're still there alive, breathing to ask the third time. And so what God says is, do you not see in the fact that you've been to this place for the third visit, that even when you think there's nothing left, there's enough of me to get you to the next side, the next day, to the light at the end of the tunnel. What God is saying is this. I could take away your pain, but then right away, it would also take away that raw dependence you have. This, this childlike heart that says, Daddy, I'm not going to see the morning if you don't get me through this. God does what at first sight appears to be a very cold and loveless thing. He says, no, I'm not going to take that thorn away because that thorn is very useful to me and to you. It is one of the principal ways that I am drawing you to see me as your sufficient father. Now, maybe your thorn, 
Maybe it's not a physical ailment. But in verse 10, Paul expands the definition of weakness to include lots of other things. He talks about insults, which might be hurtful words that other people have used to attack you. Slander of your character. Think about this. These false apostles in Corinth were dragging Paul's reputation through the dirt. And what I realized is that's one of the costs of humility, is that you will often be underestimated. You know, we judge a book by its cover, so if you're not promoting the cover all the time, people will see what they see, and they'll think that's all that you've got. Those, those who are not self-promoting and insecure in that way are very often going to be overlooked. People look at you and go, well, you're not too much. I got you all figured out. I got you categorized. I've got you ranked in the pecking order of this room. And what I've come to learn is insecure people have to constantly promote their own greatness because if they don't speak of it, it doesn't exist. And because they're that way, they often do that and project it onto other people. Unless you're boasting very overtly, unless you're wearing your fortune on your sleeve, unless it's parked in your driveway, you're nothing. And that's the way they see themselves, and so that's what they project to everyone else. And so, in fact, because they are only a cover and not a book, they see everybody else only by the cover, and they assume that's all that the book contains. I've come to learn that there's almost always more than meets the eye with people. I've grown, at least in this little bit of wisdom, I have too often been burned by underestimating somebody and realizing there is far more than what I imagined. And the quieter the person is, the less assuming and self-promoting they are, the more you should recognize there's probably depth there that you cannot see. person who goes on and on being their own publicist, you've probably seen the whole story in exaggerated form already. So anyway, insults and persecutions, which are when the insults turn into actions that attack you, or hardships, which are persistent conditions which challenge your life, things that you have to live with every day. You can't just get over it, or calamities which are sudden occurrences which devastate you. In other words, if you haven't experienced it already, weakness will visit your life. You can't run from it or avoid it or finance yourself out of it forever. Eventually, it will catch you. I just got done reevaluating my health coverage, and we bought a brand new platform for our health insurance that I think is going to be serving our family better. And, you know, I, I just upped my life insurance policy. And in doing all this, I realized I felt a little more secure that I had all these insurance policies lined up. But I realized that's just money. All that says is if I get deathly ill, the bills will get paid, but that money will do nothing for my health. In the end, I realized that that's an illusion of security because in the end, that money will not make me well. There are some things which money cannot deliver me from. I am thrust at the mercy of God because in those places, I am completely powerless to determine my destiny. What will you be like when you hit that point in your life? This unexpected response from God is so interesting. My grace is sufficient for you. See, we always assume that I'm going to see the grace of God when my suffering is behind me. I see God's goodness in his deliverance, in his rescue. And yes, that's quite often the case. God receives great glory and great gratitude when we pray about an illness and he makes us well. He gets the glory and the credit for that. 
But that's not the only way that God's grace shows up in our lives. He says, listen, I'm not going to take this thorn out of your flesh, but I want you to know that that doesn't change a thing. My grace is still sufficient for you. That word sufficient is a word that points to supply. And we worry, don't we? I got through today, but whenever someone's in pain, we project forward in time. We, we say, what if today was an okay day, but tomorrow is going to be hard? And what if God got me through this day, this hour, but he's not going to get me through tomorrow? Today, I felt like fighting a little. Today, I felt like changing a little, but tomorrow, I might stab myself in the back and not care. And we wonder, is God like me? Does he have good days and bad days where today he's faithful, he's listening to my prayers, but tomorrow I'll shout to heaven and all I'll hear back is deafening silence. Does God care? And what God says is, it is in your weakness you will understand, I will always be sufficient. You can't exhaust God's supply of grace. Maybe your faith is limited in supply, but the grace of God is not. there's a great story told by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's one of these these great pastors from England in the 1800s. Thanks, Steve. And one day, I could really identify with this, after a particularly draining day of ministry at the church, he was riding home, and he just felt completely depleted by what had gone on that day. And then the words of 2 Corinthians 12 rang in his ears, my grace is sufficient for you. And as he's riding alongside the the River Thames, here's what the story is told this way. In his mind, he immediately compared himself to a little fish in the River Thames, apprehensive lest drinking so many pints of water in the river each day, he might drink the Thames dry. Then Father Thames said to him, drink away, little fish. My stream is sufficient for you. Next, he thought of a little mouse in the granaries of Egypt, afraid lest its daily nibbles exhaust the supplies and cause it to starve to death. Then Joseph comes along and says, cheer up, little mouse. My granaries are sufficient for you. Then he thought of a man climbing some high mountain to reach its lofty summit and dreading lest his breathing hard there might exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere. The creator booms his voice out of heaven saying, breathe away, O little man, and fill your lungs. My atmosphere is sufficient for you. You know, pain makes us think that the end is near. What God says is every single day when you think you can't go on, there will be enough of me to get you to the other side of that. You always look for God in the deliverance, but sometimes he's there in the journey alongside you, getting you from one moment to the next. And sometimes that is the place where you see the most profound manifestation of God's grace and power in your life. Look what it says. Is there something going on here? There it goes. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Not after weakness, not when weakness is in your rearview mirror, but sometimes in the midst of that thing which so afflicts you and drains you and is working hard to make you give up the fight. It is in that place that God will meet you. 
And he says, you will find sometimes in the midst of that kind of suffering, that is where God will show up most profoundly in your life. We need to hear this because so often what people tell me is, God's not good because I'm still struggling. And the assumption there is this. Either God loves me, but he's too weak to help me, or God could help me, but he doesn't love me enough to help me. Those are the two false conclusions we reach when we ask for deliverance and deliverance does not come. And what God says is, hey, maybe I haven't pulled the thorn out of your flesh, but look next to you. Who's sitting by you this whole time? And the weakness of American Christianity is that we tie the goodness of God to whether life is good or life is difficult. And God says, you'll never understand the gospel or the Christianity or me unless you understand that it's not only when I take the trouble away that I'm good, but the fact that I sit with you and I get you through the trouble every step of the way, that is where you see that I am good. And we American Christians struggle so much to see that God is good and God is loving when my life is difficult. We may be the first society ever on the face of the planet in all of human history to be genuinely surprised and offended that life has trouble. That struggle comes. Every other civilization has accepted it. And God is challenging us to accept it as well. You can't run from it forever, but in the midst of it, you will see God if you look for him. I'll end simply this way. Every three months or so, I I go and visit with a good friend of mine uh, who is going through, he has pancreatic cancer. And I knew him when he didn't have cancer, and he was a pretty good guy. But I see him now, And he's become, for me, something like a spiritual teacher. When I go to hang out with him, ostensibly I'm going to minister to him, but I always walk away feeling like I received more than I gave. What he says is, of course, I'm not insane. I pray that the cancer will be held at bay. And so far, God has answered that prayer. He is a walking medical miracle. I don't know how he's still alive, but God is sustaining his life. But that's not the really great story in his life. He says, it's not, it's not in my medical condition that I see God, but it's the midst of my great despair and hopeless moments when I'm utterly broken by this, that something great has been happening in me. He says, Dave, I have found a peace and a sense of God's nearness that I never understood or experienced when I was healthy. There's just something about being brought to my knees because it's so clear now that I've exhausted all my power. He had a lot of money, but the money could not do anything for him. And what he says is, here in this place, I'm completely at the mercy of God. Every day if I wake up in the morning, I know it's because God has kept me alive through the night. And now I feel like I know him When I pray, I feel like there's someone on the other end. When I sit and think about him, it's as if I'm thinking about someone in the chair next to me, not someone who's very far away. And what he testifies is he saw all of that in his weakness, not after it. That's the invitation that I give to each of us. Don't stop praying for deliverance. It's a good prayer to pray. 
But know this, if you're looking for God, then at some point you will be like Paul upon the third breaking point when he said, God, take this away. Something snapped in him, something dawned and he realized, I won't ask ever again for this thorn to be pulled out of my flesh. For every time this thorn reminds me that I'm broken and frail and powerless, I instinctively remember that God is sufficient for me. This thorn is painful, but it has been exceedingly useful to bring my heart to God and to awaken my spirit to him. And so at some point he says, I'm not praying anymore that he'll take the thorn away. But he prays, God, thank you for teaching me that even in this weakness, there is occasion for joy. I know that as I say that to an American audience, it doesn't even seem logical. For many of us, our minds are saying, how the heck can that be true? But I want you to give God a try. And instead of saying this time, take this away, say, God, in the midst of this, come sit with me. Help me to understand that you're good, even if I don't get better. Help me to know that you're the one who's going to get me through this, and your companionship is gift enough. Some of you really need to hear that because of what you're going through today. I pray that the peace of God will really settle upon you. Why don't we pray together? I preach about weakness and affliction with a healthy dose of humility because I'm aware that many of you have suffered far more than I ever have in my nearly 45 years of life. In this last month of reflecting on these verses, I've begun really praying in earnest. God, I don't think that that record's going to hold I think a pain is coming that's going to discipline my heart. It's going to teach me to be humble. And when that day comes, don't let it break me or turn my heart against you. Don't let me ever in my heart think that you are unloving or unkind to me. In your weakness, God and his grace is sufficient. He has not promised relief, but he has promised himself. And you will find that that's enough. As we pray in response, one of the things I think some of us can pray is, God, help me to stop looking for what's in your hand and teach me that the great reward of this Christian life is to look for you and find you. Just pray that way. Turn our hearts to God now. Let's pray together. Lord, we believe that we do live in a fallen and broken universe. That this world and everything around us 
is in bondage to decay. And left alone, everything grows weaker. Lord, I believe that for all my friends in this room, we are not done struggling in this life. Weakness and hardship still are coming over the horizon. I also believe, God, that challenges are coming to us as a nation so far outside our control that a day may come when we'll wonder if this is still America that we knew. And we pray when those hard days come and the weaknesses overwhelm us, you will train our hearts to turn towards you and not away, to reach up to you and find that while the weakness remains, you're always with us. And that's enough. Someday we will be free of every struggle and every weakness. There will be no more tears and no more pain, no more sorrow and no more death. A day is coming when we will truly be free. But until that day, Help us to see that you are good simply because you are with us. Some of us have prayed, God, with all our hearts that you might take away the thorn from our flesh. And you have lovingly said no. For those people in their discouragement, help them also to hear from you and to see in you that you are enough. Get us through this hour and through this day for every tomorrow that we'll face in this struggle be there ahead of us I pray for those of us who have never really struggled at this depth who have lived in relative comfort and security strengthen us so that when this new experience comes upon us we will be broken redemptively and not shattered Help us not to curse you and die, but to seek you and be delivered. I pray this with all my heart for all of us. Thank you for being good. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for being enough in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.